You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravellis here. I hope this finds you all safe and well. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, I'd like to welcome you all to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. We continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the summer season. Tonight, we are once again delighted to have back in our orbit a writer whose work we've been following for many moons and whom we are very fond of. I am speaking of Francisco Goldman. We are celebrating the launch of his much-anticipated new novel titled Monkey Boy, published by the Venerable Grove Press. It is his first novel to be released since his widely acclaimed and award-winning national bestseller titled Say Her Name. Francisco Goldman has published four novels and two books of nonfiction. His books have been published in 16 languages. The Long Night of White Chickens was awarded the American Academy's Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction. His novels have been finalists for several prizes, including twice the Penn Faulkner Prize. His book, The Art of Political Murder, won the Index on Censorship T.R. Favell Book Award and the W.O.L.A. Duke Human Rights Book Award. The Interior Circuit, a Mexico City Chronicle, was named by the LA Times as one of the 10 best books of the year, received the Blue Metropolis Prize in 2017. Mr. Goldman divides his time between Brooklyn and Mexico City. He will be joined tonight in conversation by Valeria Luiselli. Ms. Luiselli was born in Mexico City and grew up in South Korea, South Africa, and India. An acclaimed writer of both fiction and nonfiction, she is the author of the essay collection Sidewalks, the novels Faces in the Crowd, and The Story of My Teeth, Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 Questions, and Lost Children Archive. She is the recipient of numerous honors for her work. These include the 2019 MacArthur Fellowship, twice winner of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the Carnegie Medal, and an American Book Award, as well as numerous nominations that include a National Book Critics Circle Award and the Booker Prize. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Granta, McSweeney's, amongst other publications. Her work has been translated into more than 20 languages. She is a writer in residence at Bard College and makes her home in New York City. So now, with great pleasure, Francisco Goldman and Valeria Luiselli, welcome to City Lights Live. Thanks. It's, wow, it's such an honor. It's so great to be here. This is, uh, I love this bookstore. When I was a teenager and did my first cross-country hitchhiking trip when I was 18, it was almost like a pilgrimage to finally go see City Lights Bookstore. And uh, I've had many great times with Peter and Paul out in San Francisco and at BA in New York, the, the booksellers. You know, this is just one of the great the independent bookstores are treasures, so vital to our neighborhoods and cities and towns all across America. And this is the classic store. Everybody would come to me and say, how should I open a store? I'd say, you know, what should it look like? You know, what kinds of books should it stock? I'd say, go take a look at City Lights. It's also great to be here with my dear friend, Valeria, who I've known for several years since she arrived one day in New York City, being about to start her, her academic career at Columbia, and out of the blue looked me up, and we've been friends since. And she's a genius, and I admire her so much. So I'm going to read from Monkey Boy. 
I'm just gonna start in because this sort of gives you a sense of where we're going. When I visit my mother tomorrow in Green Meadows, her nursing home, it will be for the fourth time since I moved back, this after a decade of sometimes seeing her only once a year. My sister Lexi visits a couple of times a week. After all these years of living abroad, when I often couldn't remember to phone her even once a month, I do try to talk to my mother every week now. She hasn't felt so present in my life since I left home for good at 18. It seems now like she's always just a quick thought away. And I'd like to picture her in a room at the nursing home with her patient rabbit smile, waiting to resume our conversations. I was a little puzzled when I noticed that I'm not in any of the framed photographs on her windowsill and wondered what the reason was. Really, I should just bring her a picture now. Two photos of Mamita with her own mother are displayed there. One from when she was in her mid twenties and Abuelita came to Boston to help her move into that boarding house and get her settled. The other is from a few years before Abuelita died when she looked quite a bit like my mother does now, puffy around the eyes, eyelids drooping. There's a photograph of Lexi when she went to Guatemala during a college summer vacation. She's standing on the rough stone steps of the famous old church in Chichicastenango, smiling zestily, surrounded by the usual kneeling Maya shamans with their smoky incense sensors. Another from about a decade later shows Lexi and her parents in a familial pose, standing close together, mother and sister in flowing dresses for who knows what occasion I wasn't at. My father in jacket and tie, but you can't see his face because of the piece of cardboard taped over it. Only Lexi could have decided to do that. When I asked Mamita about it, she looked blank for a moment. Then she dismissively clucked her teeth like she does and said, ah, no se, Frankie. I wonder if the nurses and other staff laughed to themselves over that photo. Some even thinking, oh yeah, I know about husbands and fathers like that. So this book basically narrates a five-day trip home by Francisco Goldberg, who's just moved back to New York after years in Mexico City, in Central America. Inside this five-day trip home, a whole life story gets narrated during the course of the book and this narration. So you get bits and snatches of that life. Jesus Christ Almighty, this. I'm lying on my back among the weeds and pebbles of the apron at the top of Sacco Road gasping for breath, unable to draw any air, in a rising frenzy of panic and terror because I'm suffocating to death. My recall is hazy, but I do know that Gary Sacco and some of the others had caught me alone. Insults, shoves, a burst of boy punches, clumsy and savage, a hard punch to my throat. When they saw me on my back gasping for air, they ran away. Panic, harshly gasping, unable to draw any air. That's what I most vividly remember and that I was lying near a telephone pole, long, slightly drooping strands of black wire high above me against the brilliantly azure sky. Soon enough, my throat relaxed, opened. I gulped air, could breathe again. Then I must have gotten to my feet and walked home. How could I explain to my mother what had happened, describe the improbable punch that had caused my throat to close and how terrifying that had been, lying there, unable to breathe? Not even my mother has ever given me the slightest indication of remembering or ever having known about that time when I was punched in the neck. 
Yet years later, I found out that Lexi knew all about it. She told a girlfriend of mine when we'd come from New York on a visit. They had a conversation that I wasn't present for, just my sister and Camilla. My sister was telling her how terribly I'd been bullied as a child, that in fact, we'd had to move from our house because boys in our neighborhood had almost murdered me. They'd left me for dead and I'd almost suffocated to death, she told Camilla. You mean they strangled him, Camilla asked. And Lexi said, no, but they hit him so hard in the neck, his throat closed. Lexi said she'd witnessed it and that she'd run to my side to help me. I didn't want to let on what a disagreeable surprise it was to learn that my sister knew about that incident and to find out now as an adult in this way from Camilla. Lexi had never been a part of my memory of what had happened. It felt like a too intimate intrusion for her to be telling Camilla about it now. At least that's what I decided later when I tried to understand why it had so angered me. That memory should only belong to me, a terror and pain I couldn't or didn't want to share, especially not with someone who would later make such annoying use of it and who seemed to have a much clearer and more complete memory of what the episode had looked like, at least, than I did. Almost murdered me, I scoffed. That's nonsense. I had enemies, but I don't remember anyone almost murdering me. This is Guatemala City about 1984. Penny Moore strode into my bedroom holding a gardening handrake and said, you should have this. But we didn't have a garden or anything like one. Her rake had five iron prongs, each filed or laid to a sharp point. Someone had recently given it to her. She'd been keeping it by her bed, ready to use as a weapon in an emergency. I'm trying to remember exactly what color its wooden handle was, a grayish shade, I think. It was one of those times when Guatemalan G2 military intelligence and the death squads seemed to be launching another of their sporadic killing frenzies. What seemed different now was that they weren't only targeting Guatemalans. A junior diplomat from one of the Scandinavian countries had apparently spent several days in a guerrilla camp, not necessarily inconsistent with her information gathering duties. In the middle of the night, intruders stealthily scaled the wall outside her rented home, climbed in through her bedroom window, repeatedly raped and stabbed her, and left her body for dead as a message that the people it was intended for would not misconstrue. Miraculously, she survived and was immediately evacuated by air ambulance. There was a lot of nervous whispering going around about who was getting threats, who'd already fled, who might be next. Embassies and international aid organizations were all freaking, ordering staff living in apartments and homes conceivably vulnerable to wall climbing agents of freedom to move into gated multi-story condominium complexes with good security. Penny Moore, non-pareil information gatherer, also had a lot of contacts among the guerrillas. She received probably many more threats than she'd let on to me. It wouldn't be so hard for people with the required skills to reach our windows from the sidewalk or the roof. We knew that the bad guys, military intelligence, other Guat officials, the US embassy, must suspect that Penny wasn't just a magazine springer, even if they didn't know for sure. Maybe they didn't think one person could be behind those voluminous human rights reports that were causing the Guatemalan military government 
and the Bonzo administration in Washington so many headaches. They didn't think that one boyishly skinny long-legged girl whose ears stuck out through her thin black hair, who had a laugh like a neighing donkey, who'd first come to Guatemala as a Fulbright scholar and college student to study bats and Mayan mythology, could be doing all that by herself. One day she told me that until she let me know otherwise, we both had to stay away from every Guatemalan we knew. A deep source had told her that military intelligence had put a tail on us. Our alarm system was beer and soda bottles stacked on the seats of chairs underneath all our windows. So that if they came in, bottles would fall to the floor and shatter. I had developed a strange tick inside my cheek that twitched constantly. From that time on, and even to this day, if I'm walking on the sidewalk and the door of a parked car suddenly opens just in front of me or a little way ahead, I jump out of my skin. Penny was in her black Viet Cong jumpsuit that I like to tease her about. Her extraordinary character amplified her awkward beauty, electrifyingly vital, with that touch of dark Azrael energy. I was trying to absorb that we were saying goodbye, for a long time at least, we would never be roommates again. She laid the garden rake down on my bed, her bequeathed going away present. It was indeed a deadly weapon. She was flying to London, where she'd spend a week huddled with Aunt Irene, as we were supposed to refer to Amnesty International whenever speaking of it over the phone, going over and preparing their next human rights report. She'd be briefing a parliamentary committee, flying to Geneva for secret meetings with UNHRC officials. Danielle Mitterrand had invited Petty Mo to stay with her in Paris for a week. When she came back, she wasn't going to be my roommate in Tia Nana's old apartment anymore. We both understood it really was time for her to live somewhere more secure. People in London and elsewhere who knew her situation were pressuring her about it. I didn't pay any rent and had never charged Penny. We'd just split utilities. Besides her morning cup of yogurt, a banana and coffee, she hardly ever ate there. I helped her carry her luggage down the long narrow stairs to the metal door leading to the street. The drive to the airport was notoriously dangerous. If they didn't want people to leave the country but hadn't found a way to make them disappear beforehand, they'd sometimes ambush them there. A simple hatchback car with polarized windows, electrical tape over the cracks in one was waiting for her and a couple of sturdy muchachos got out, one to open the trunk the other casting his eyes up and down the street, his hand thrust into the clearly weighted down pocket of his baggy nylon windbreaker. Afterward, I went back up the stairs and could feel tears starting in my eyes. I almost never cried. When had I last cried? I had a terrible feeling of gloom, of foreboding, like my spirit was going away too. Another passenger in a long shadow train of the ghosts of the murdered or soon to be murdered a train with shadow wheels on shadow tracks, its silent clacking echoing through blood and nerves, the rhythm of the flinching tremor in my cheek. Those are just three. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Frank. I wish we could hear and feel the room, you know, the way that, that one does when, when you do readings. It's just so strange to read on Zoom, right? Yeah. There's an intimacy for the- I uh, think people I know, <laughs> I, I, I see Penny Moore. Oh, cool. <laughs> I always, when I read, when I read, when I read you, when I read in general, I always assume that I'm reading fiction. 
So I know this was a very biographical work, but the fact that Penny Moore exists and is here is, is for me a materialization of... <laughs> well, it's fiction and we'll talk about that, yeah. So. Well, yeah, I do want to ask you that later on, but first I, I want to start with a question about, or a couple of questions if we have time about violence. I think this, this book is um, a very brilliant, very lucid and very brutal examination of violence, violence in, in the private sphere at home, but violence also not only in the domestic fear, but institutional violence. I mean, from the nursing home to schools to something more structural and choreographed like the US military interventions in, in Latin America. So it kind of maps out this very complex um, cartography of violence. And I would like to hear you talk a bit about how how you think about the way violence spills over from, from our private spaces to our public lives and how, while you, how you, while, while you were writing this book, you were tracing kind of histories of violence uh, in, your, in your own life and how you think about those histories and how they're intertwined. Yeah, well, you know, that cartography you talk about something that emerged in the writing of the book purely intuitively, right? I never sat down and said, I'm going to draw a connection between high school violence and systematic U.S. imperialistic violence, for example, right? And violence of my, my father, which are the three main violences in the book, I think there's probably more, <laughs> right? And yet when that emerged, and why did that emerge? This narrative emerged because I was really trying to look at what had shaped my life and how I had tried to uh, get through the years from my childhood to now, hopefully in a meaningful, eventually positive way and what those kinds of things had meant. And obviously when, you know, you know if I just, you know, taking them one at a time, the violence of my father against me physically, against my sister verbally, against my mother physically and verbally, shaped so much of my existence. And of course, I looked at myself later, and it never occurred to me that this was particularly different from, you know, from what everyone goes through or something. I, you know, it was, I had never been, for instance, in therapy in my life until my wife out at died horribly in 2007. And I had to go to a, a thanatologist, you know, someone, a grief specialist. And she became like really interesting in my childhood, which surprised me. And she began to form this idea that maybe it was just to make me feel better about myself. She said, it's just unbelievable. Your childhood was just, just violence at home, violence at school. And you managed to emerge as this kind of vulnerable, you know, uh, problems, you know, you know, you know, intact person capable of love eventually. And so that's what, you know, you know, I think that uh, I look back there and I just have so much solidarity and admiration just for my own family, how my mother managed to move on from it, how my sister managed to finally get through it, though it was a struggle for some of us, right? And then at school, 
I've long had the idea, you know, that a typical suburban white American high school is a microcosm of the very worst of the United States of America. Always has been, right? I remember the wonderful Kurt Vonnegut line of like, you grow up in an American high school, go to high school and like, finally you get to college and you think finally at last, I'm in a place where life makes sense, where people are kind, where people are interesting, where I'm not worried about getting beat up every day. And then college ends, you go back out into America and it's high school all over again. <laughs> in a way, in, in a way, right? Yeah. And, um, and, 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 and obviously you can't understand the way American foreign policy lives in a country. I don't mean necessarily, you know, apart from who designs it back in Washington, but lives without connecting it to the complete contempt your average male, you know, average male, I'm not talking about the special people who are sensitive and different, but just the male horde, the white male horde, the contempt they feel for people who are different, the contempt they feel for weakness, the contempt they feel for people of color, the incredibly grotesque contempt they feel for women, girls, all of that, you really see, you know, what an expression that is of, of an American reality that projects out there. We're not the only country on earth, you know, where, where male violence is part of an expression of our national character, right? But we're the country I know. No, certainly even, you know, the Guatemalan uh, machismo and racism or Central American is another kind of very, you know, horrible violence that you find yourself having to deal with. And, there, and I guess the big question too is, you know, you go and you engage this stuff, what are you looking for, right? What are you looking for? What are you out there looking for? Exposing yourself to it, making yourself vulnerable to it. You're not trying to become as hard and tough as they are. Some people do. Some people go to war because that's exactly what they want, right? And some of us go to war and get close to war and get close to things because they knew if you're someone like me, your family's from Guatemala, your family's from the United States, you, you dream of being a certain kind of writer and you just know you have to get, this is the two sides of your heritage. You just know you have to get close to it. Or you have a dream because you've, because of, again, of certain things you've managed to pick up in your life of what's important and what's valuable. Justice is super important to you. You worship, admire, you wanna be close to people who have the courage to try to get close to and stand up for what's right amazing, you know, the most formative experience of my life is being close to people like that. And you become aware that how important it is to like become yourself, right? In that incredibly pressurized environment where there's so much pressure always to think a certain way, think like it, like a certain kind of lefty or if you're another kind of person, you know, follow the marching orders of American foreign policy or to whatever, right? And to me, the most valuable thing too, that was part of that, for me, the most formative experience in my life was basically, you know, from 1979 to the Panama evasion, Hmm. Central America being the heart of my life, was to uh, find my own way of being, Hmm. right? And learning to to think and feel and act for myself. Right. And how do you you think that you were talking about this male horde that has contempt and 
for for everything other, everyone other just now. Do you think, and if so, how the USA that you portray in Monkey Boy is different to today's USA or not? In its most aggressive aspect, it's just the same. Right. It didn't surprise me. I got to, I, I mean, you know, I don't want to insult anybody, but I had been a bit out of touch with my hometown until a few years ago when I, I got a, this wonderful fellowship at Harvard, the Radcliffe Institute. And because I was there, I got back in touch with a lot of people, people I'd been in high school with and so forth. No surprise that so many of them were Trump supporters, you know, and just out of pure perversity, I would invite them to Harvard parties to see how they were Talk about oil and water. (laughs) It was like, um, you know, and some of them were very gentle. One of them was still one of my old, you know, I was, if you read the book, you find out, you read about this football team, the 10th grade sophomore football team. We lost every game, but it was like a nucleus of buddies, right? And and, uh, one of them is still a very good friend. And and, and he, uh, really gentle, wonderful guy. He went into the army right after high school, right? So, it doesn't automatically turn you into this kind of person. My friend, John, who went from high school into the army is an incredibly gentle, wonderful guy. And Frank, you you mentioned also in in this first answer, um, this very, very complex and deep answer that you gave around around violence. You you mentioned this belonging to two worlds, right? this being kind of always split in two and, and, and needing to somehow go back to one of them and understand no, the way to maybe bridge the two realities that you belong to, or at least understand their, their difference, their, their incapacity to really bridge them. But I wondered uh, all the time while reading, while reading this novel, maybe more than other books that I've read, uh, your other books that I've read, how you were experiencing the kind of ongoing act of translation that belonging to two worlds implies. And, that, and in this particular novel, because you're writing about, about your childhood, a childhood that I imagine existed kind of bilingually as well. And in Boston, but not only, like there was always probably some kind of extraterritoriality uh, in it. And, and how, how, you were, how you were experiencing that kind of constant act of translation and and how you, yeah, how, how you decided to deal with it in this novel. Well, you know, it was the way I wrote about everything, you know, that sense of being from two worlds, which is essentially just boils down to being from both Guatemala and Boston Jewish immigrant family too, right? It's very intimate. <laughs> it's the Guatemalan side of the family and the Boston side of the family. And the Guatemalan side of the family had been a part of my life all the time. We constantly went back there. As you know, when you read the book, my mother leaves my father when I'm just some months old. And we go back to Guatemala and we don't come back till, you know, I'm three, right? Because I'm sick. And, uh, and, and so I always had this sense of this other world being in some sense part of my really true world. And for that, be, that being invisible to everybody. There's other people who had no idea what that was, right? And could never really understand it or care about it, or especially when you're a child and a teenager. And so, but the way to write about it wasn't so much translating. 
this for me was the thing I most worked hardest at in this book, was just trying to get really close to it. This whole mantra in this book was to get as close to whatever I was writing about it as I could, so that it would be palpably there on the page. You almost feel that person, right? That I'm interacting with. And a lot of that was memory recovery. And some of that was imagination, right? You create a character that comes from this world and you kind of also imagine exactly how they would be, right? That was the, to use, I don't want, I don't want to sound pompous, but that was the music of what you're trying to create, right? There's a Guatemalan music, Central American music, and there's an American one. And those melodies are going, right? And of course, there are times in the book where it's about the confusion and, and of being from two cultures and the decisions you, you have to make. And the, the confusion, okay, to give you like one example, my mother, when you're young, my mother was constantly, because my mother was constantly telling me, don't forget your Guatemalan too. It was so important to her, right? Your Guatemalan too, your Guatemalan too, which was just like the worst advice for a kid growing up in an Irish, Italian, white, working class town. <laughs> it was like the last thing you wanted to go present that. Rest, right. So as a, but this is incredible because as it perversely, as I say in the book, what did I do? What was my reaction to that? I become obsessed with American revolutionary history. I totally defy my mom and become the biggest American revolution nerd in the world. Right. What does that lead to? I have terrible grades in high school. I probably won't even, you know, I might, I get a job. This boat on the ship. As, as I was the bicentennial summer tour guide on the Boston Tea Party ship. <laughs> How amazing is that, right? Back then in the 70s, they didn't typecast people so much. Mm. You know, it was like this kind of, it was this kind of naivete in American culture. I guarantee you right now, and I know because I've gone back many times, I'd love to go back to the Tea Party ship. And now every Boston Tea Party ship guide looks like Ben Affleck or Matt Damon. <laughs> Not a Guatemalan kid. They typecast it like crazy. I love to go back and tell those guys I had your job once, right? Especially when my hair was really black and curly. I'd be coming, you know, <laughs> and they'd go, "What you, you know?" And and paradoxically, though, mm-hmm. if I hadn't gotten had that job, I don't think I would have gotten out of college because it was like such a great thing to put in my resume. And all that stress from my childhood of Guatemalan too, you're Guatemalan too. She created a kind of division in me mm-hmm. that led a map, first a map that would lead me to the rest of my life. Right. You know, mother formed me in ways that, you know, both, you know, ways I pushed back against and yet ways that later in my life showed me the way. Right, right. Continue yeah. to live into yeah. a map, in fact, right? Yeah. yeah. And would you read a little more for us before, um, I mean, I'd like to ask a couple more questions. I don't know if I'll have time for my questions, maybe one, but I'm gonna open up the floor soon for others. No, no rush. About 15 years ago now, when my first novel was published, I came to Boston to give my first ever bookstore reading. And the next morning I received a phone call from my book's publicist telling me that a reporter from the Globe wanted to talk to me in person. The novel had been featured on the front page of the newspaper's Sunday art section. And now a newspaper profile. The publicist was excited and I was too. I suggested that the reporter and I meet right here where I'm standing now on the Congress Street Bridge. That way I'd be able to gesture at the Tea Party ship and say, 
During my senior year in high school and on into the bicentennial summer, I worked here as a tour guide. I used to especially like to sit up on that crow's nest. The publicist thought it was a good promotional idea to, to stress my local roots. Fred Terrell was the reporter's name. He arrived at the bridge before me and was standing by the rail overlooking the ship. He looked around 60, about my height, and he was wearing a beige raincoat that accented the slump of his shoulders, short curly white hair, small gray mustache, wide apart, blue-gray eyes, large head, cetacean almost. Fred Terrell said hello, spoke my name without smiling, shook hands with a quick squeeze. The overcast sky, the reporter's unexpected lack of warmth, a premonition maybe, made me think of spies in Cold War movies who arrange a rendezvous on a bridge to exchange information, after which they depart in opposite directions except one spy walks a few blocks and is murdered. The reporter didn't congratulate me on my novel or attempt any banter. He said, I'm sorry to put you on the spot like this, Francesco, but it's best that I get to the point. We received a fax at the newspaper that makes a serious allegation we feel obligated to follow up on. Do you know a woman named Lana Gatto? Yes, we went to high school together, I answered but I haven't seen or heard from Lana in years. I felt apprehensive, but also mystified. Fred Terrell spoke the name of the high school and I said, that's right. But what did Lana Gatto, the faded memory of that teenage girl mean to me? Here I was just having published my first novel reviewed on the cover of Sunday's art section of Fred Terrell's newspaper. The large photo of my face on that page now serving as birdcage liner and laid over floors for puppies to pee on all over New England. And now here was Mr. Fred Terrell of the Globe asking about Lana Gatto, who I hadn't seen even once in 17 years. Fred Terrell said, Francesco, the reason I asked to meet with you today is that in her facts to us, Lana Gatto alleges that you are not a Hispanic or, or, or a Latino. She says that in high school, your name was Frank, and that you're Jewish. According to Ms. Gatto, you had a nickname that everybody knew you by. And he glanced down at a notepad he pulled from the pocket of his raincoat, folded open to the page he wanted and said, balls. And looked at me as if silently willing himself, show no facial expression. I answered, yes, Mr. Terrell, I admit it, I am Jewish. And all these years I've been hiding my true identity behind the last name Goldberg. It would have been great if Fred Terrell had published our exchange in his newspaper, but he ended up not writing any story, probably wanting to recover some dignity, which is sometimes impossible to do for a person who after all has just lost it. Fred Terrell said, as you might know, recently there've been other cases of authors turning out not to be what and who they claim, so we do need to follow up when something like this crosses our desks. He must have been referring to the case of the novel about a Chicano. It turned out to have been written by a Jewish guy using the surname Suarez or Sanchez, book and publicity spurning author from the barrio were a sensation until he was outed, then book and author were nuked. That's what Fred Terrell thought he was going to get to do to me, thanks to his deep throat source, Lana Gatto. But my answer landed like a clean punch. You got me, man. My name's Goldberg, I re reiterated with a shrug. 
And Francesco, Frontera asked tensely, a mean little curl to his lip. Lana Gatto says that nobody called you by that name. Francisco, I think you mean. You know, like in San Fran, the California city? Nope, they sure didn't, Mr. Tarrell. Growing up, I always went by Frank, but I was named for my mother's father. Come on, man, you know what people are like around here. You think I was going to run around my high school waving a Guatemalan flag and insisting kids call me Francisco? Lena Gatto also wrote in her facts, said Fred Tarrell, speaking through visibly gritted teeth, that she was in your Spanish class and that you failed. That's not true, I said, I got a C minus. You want me to say something to you in Spanish? <laughs> Still makes me laugh. <laughs> I really, really love that that section, <laughs> Mr. Goldberg, <laughs> such a Hispanic name that you were hiding under. So I want to ask you one more question. I think I only have time for one more for for myself because I I want to give others a chance, and it's it's a weird question to ask maybe. Good. But um. For the, all the years that I've known you, I've always marveled and, and loved at the way you, you speak about the process of your writing. Like when, you're, when you're writing, when you're there, you're there. You're nowhere else. Like you're, you're a complete zombie in reality and can, can, can only think of, of uh, that scene that you're trying to work on in, like in the nursing home. And that's all you talk about. But you talk about... Um, about about your writing process or about being in a particular place with with such sense of um of joy for writing of enjoyment and so i want to ask you a question about enjoyment about the connection you make between pleasure and creativity about where you where you find it and how or how it surprises you how it finds you and how how you work toward it Oh boy, that is so complex, right? There's so many different ways. Accepting that a lot of it is drudgery, insecurity, anxiety, struggle. Oh my God, this is never going to work. I'm so bad, right? The, the pleasure comes from one, when you really lock in and concentrate and the hours fly by, right? The pleasure comes from, as you go conceiving, right? I mean, and I say every novel is a search for its own shape. It's a shape for itself, right? I do think that, you know, you're trying to assemble a novel, like you're assembling a kind of magical toy that will work by itself, that is autonomous and all its parts move and you're assembling those parts, but you're assembling those parts out of things that have a lot of meaning to you, right? And, and you're trying to see how making these things move together inside whatever structure you finally find, how that changes the meaning your understanding of, of what they mean and how they might create meanings in concert with each other. And so the joy comes when finally to conceiving it and finally when the surprises come, when it starts to work, when it starts to go forward, when you see that it's working, right? Which is late. This is a, a novel about a five day trip home that took seven years to write because I was lost a lot of the time. At one point, the draft was 800 pages long, right? My life changed so much during the writing. What I was looking for, it kept changing. But then finally, that last year, when it came together, that last draft, when I handed in that last draft to my agent, she said, what did you do? This is a whole different book, mm -hmm. right? Almost, there was almost nothing in this 300 pages. It, 
maybe half of it had been in the previous drafts. And why did that new stuff come? The new stuff came because suddenly, you know, it became inevitable because the, the thing was moving in the way it had to move. And so it knew where to go before you yourself knew where to go. You were finally sort of following. Yeah. I never in a million years expected that last scene where he travels back in time and it's his mother. Don't say, don't say too much. <laughs> yeah. Where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. When I was yeah. thinking about this guy. My father had known him. This silly portrait that would always been in her house. My father grew up in the great Boston Jewish neighborhood of Dorchester. It was all a Russian Jewish neighborhood. He had a friend. I combined a bunch of people. He had these World War II tough guy hero friends. Apparently there was this sort of closeted gay man who became a portrait painter who had painted this portrait of my mother because he thought she was so beautiful. And my sister told me only, I think this triggered it. My sister told me only last year hmm. and when my mother died because my sister put the portrait by my mother's casket. And I had never known that my mother had been pregnant with me when it was being painted. Hmm. And I had never known that. <laughs> and, and that's where that whole scene started to come together. It's a very powerful and beautiful ending which you shouldn't say any more about <laughs> because others have to enjoy the book <laughs> from beginning to end as much as I did. I'm really bad at saying, please purchase copies of this book because I grew up kind of Catholic. So we don't talk about money or buying, but now that I'm here, purchase this beautiful, tremendous and brutal book. Don't do so from uh, Amazon, please. There's a link right here to City Lights never purchase on Amazon, always directly with your booksellers or at worst from um, bookshop.org that goes to independent bookstores. Okay, I'm gonna take some questions from the audience. There was a question earlier, I've lost a person who, who asked it, but I remember the question. And someone wanted to know about, oh, here it is, Lee Rossi, about your title. If it relates to the novel as a whole or is it a particular incident? or an allusion to something else. Yeah, no, that's, you know, he has the nickname Monkey Boy as a boy. He has a number of nicknames, but Monkey Boy is the one that most defines him in other people's eyes. I think the name Monkey Boy, Monkey Boy it, 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 looking like a monkey, right? It's always the ambiguity was, was as in a scene in the book where he meets with a girl he was in love with unrequitedly when he was 15. And she says, oh, yeah, you know, I was so naive back then. I didn't realize what a racist nickname Monkey Boy was. And he defensively says, well, not necessarily. You know how teenagers are. I've thought about this a lot, Marianne. And I think in our entire middle school, nobody looked more like a monkey than me. <laughs> you know, and, and so there's that ambiguity of when you're sort of mixed race, you almost, you know, you, you're uncomfortable often naming things for what they are. Right. And, you know, you're used to sort of maneuvering between the categories and, el and eliding them. And, and yet, you know, sometimes people will see you in a certain way. And so Bucky Boy, yes, it's, it's part of what it's at the heart, that name, playfully in many ways. Yeah. Of that earlier self, you know, that in the course of this book, I think you see him beginning to sort of overcome. Hmm. Great. Um, I'm going to take another question here. How do you free yourself 
from loyalty to old text to create a 300 page novel out of an 800 page manuscript. Can you talk about that process at it's all? It's incredibly liberating, right? I mean, I mean, this is really quite easy. I, I have sense that to use a famous old phrase, you know, Hemingway called the bullshit detector, it's real. <laughs> that the minute you feel right here, oh no, you know, that could go, that could go. Ah, it's gone. It's gone, yeah. Because yeah. the, the wisest part of you is telling you get rid of it. And you get old enough as a writer to know it's pointless to argue with that, with your brain, which mm. you could waste weeks doing, right? It's like the minute I sense something could be gone, it's gone. When in doubt, throw it out. No? Yeah. Um, someone says, hi, Paco, Dorothy here. You spoke before of the fractal nature of violence high school, families, international relations. What about the fractal nature of love? Did you discover through the writing of Monkey Boy, if anything? I think this is such a great question because that's where the book really grew out of. This book is framed by two events you don't see. That's why in some ways it's not really that autobiographical when you consider the years it takes place. The most important events in my actual life around 207, the death of my wife out of Strata. And around 212, 213, when I fall in love with Joanna Montes, two loves, right? And the birth of my daughter, our daughter Azalea in 2018. In between that, I, you know, there was a period where when I began to look at before Auda's death, I was a writer who looked out of myself. I looked at the war in Central America. I looked at, you know, things out there. And those were still ways of expressing myself, but that's where my gaze was. That horrible traumatic event, that just such a tragic event made me look inward, mm. right? And, and, and one of the things I began to wonder about is why did it take me, you know, why did I have to wait till I was 47 before I was really able to fall in love? And you'll see when you read the book, the story is about how so many, especially the monkey boy stuff and everything, all the things that had happened to this person that had just in, utterly closed him up and utterly inhibited his ability to both really truly express love, to trust another person, to trust emotions. All of that was an accumulation of all kinds of different sorts of damages, right? And why was he finally able to overcome it? And, and, and learn how to love. So that by the time I, you know, now I am a, I'm the luckiest person in the world with this most incredible wife and most incredible daughter. How did I get there? And I wanted to trace that and look at that. And I think, I think you feel that in the book, right? I, I think you feel by the time he goes, well, I hope you'll go, this guy's finally ready hmm. for, it to, for it to happen. And I think you see the journey or at least feel it. You certainly do. And that's a beautiful fucking answer. Like you're going to make me cry. <laughs> Here is a question that goes back to Monkey Boy. But in this case, it's a question about the title itself. This is a question from Juanita Heredia. Given the title of your new novel, Monkey Boy, are you at all in, the, in dialogue with Cristina Garcia's novel, Monkey Hunting, which also deals with many ethnicities and races? No. You know, I really... I admire Christina so much. She's a friend. That's one of the books I've missed. She's so productive. She's written so many great, fabulous, fantastic books. 
I, but I have not read that one, and I and I will. Now that you mention it, you know. So will I. What year did it come out? I wonder. Well, I'm not sure. Maybe when he can take and tells it, tells. It. I'll go to the next question from Sandra S, who says, "I lived in Guate from 1980 to 1985." Francisco's description of his 1984 experiences evoked so many memories. I had similar response to Yair Bustamante's film La Llorona. I wonder if Francisco has seen, seen this film. Have you I seen sure have. Film? Yeah, I, I think it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary movie. He's an extraordinary filmmaker. And if you think of, you know, what a small country Guatemala is, you hardly think of it as a major, a major source of independent films, but it's remarkable. They've made 30 movies. I think they're in the last 10 years or something. Remarkable hmm. films of which that's one of the most, and he's made a series of remarkable films. And there've been other really terrific films in, in just the last few years out of Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And I, I was also shown the rough, rough cut of a documentary by um, Anais Taracena, which I think is now done, which is the most powerful documentary I think of. It's certainly the best documentary I've seen about Guatemala. Uh, which you, you'll be seeing. It's about, uh, about a guy who was um, in the government, but he was really infiltrated there by the guerrillas and how that just tore him to pieces. It's, it's like a real life Le Carre story. It's, it's just an incredible, incredible story. I'm not gonna ask you the next question by Tim Kantz because I feel you just answered it with, with the question from Dorothy. <laughs> so, or don't, I don't know. Tim Kantz, wherever you are, don't you agree? <laughs> that he's, 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 I think, answered beautifully. Um, it's a, the question was about takeaways and like after the soul searching, what has changed in you? And I think precisely that's what you addressed just now. There's a comment right after that that um, is more common than a, than a question. Roberto Gonzalez says that there's a line in the book that has stuck with him and it's screaming while frantically crab walking and being kicked across the floor, my head swatted off and spinning in a corner. And he says that what impresses me about this book is the brutality you describe is often paired with humor. It strikes me that this is another duality in the book. I kind of want to turn that into a question and maybe we can, maybe we can close with your, your thoughts about, about the presence of humor in, in in violence or in, in pain or in, in aggression and how you think of it in, in your own writing? I've never met anybody who's truly violent who's also funny. Hmm. Well, my father was not funny. If you think of the Harari murder case, Captain Byron Lima was not funny. No, it is like uh, Otto Perez Molina is not funny. Hmm. They have just a horrible heaviness. And if you've been around Guatemalans, you know, that the way they got through that war and the worst of it was through humor, right? That humor, you know, and when you read Bolaño, right? He really stresses that too, right? Like that darkness that he writes about, whether it's his fictionalized Ciudad Juarez, in the midst of the most gruesome scenes, there's always that spark of humor. And I really think humor is the way we save ourselves, right? It's the way we save ourselves and protect ourselves from all kinds of things that would destroy us if we let them in. We protect ourselves from solemnity. We protect ourselves from taking ourselves too seriously, right? Humor gives us perspective. If this is really terrible what's happening to me, but it's also absurd, 
and I'm just one person out of zillions of people this baby you know it just it, it just gives you it gives you a way to survive the very worst things and I don't think there's any as we know from a book like This Way to the Gas, ladies and gentlemen, there's no situation so horrible that humor can't help you address it. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. An antidote to violence, as Tim Kent's echoing, yeah. echoing your words. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. But thank you especially, Frank, for for your presence, for your brilliance, for your books, for this book in particular now. And uh, we'll be looking forward to. Yeah, same here. You're extraordinary. I can't wait to teach your book next year in my class. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Paul and Peter, I love you. And Yes, me too, Paul. And, 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 and City Lights. And City Lights, you're the greatest. Our and, temple, our temple, as you said, a peregrine. I, I, we, we need temple. another peregrination to City Lights after this <laughs> period. No? And well, we look forward. Thank, to thank you all, everybody, for coming. It's it's been so fun to just look out at you all. Yeah. So the only thing I, I regret is is not being able to kind of go out for drinks afterwards. So I'm gonna pour a little cocktail for you, Frank. Here, oh, drink <laughs> in honor of your new book, a toast. Yeah, you know, I have to just salute Penny Moore a fictionalized version of the woman who was the greatest, most courageous and most indispensable human rights reporter in Guatemala. And we went through so much together, Jean Marie Simon. And there's a scene in the book where Penny Moore turns up at a reading I've just given in politics and prose. And we go out and we get so drugged in the book, right? And, and, and after her third martini, she starts spilling the beans about stuff. Uh, it's like, <laughs> Well, Valeria, you are such a great interlocutor. Thank you so much. That was such a gift. And Frank, fantastic book. Everybody, now is your turn to uh, kind of rise to the occasion. Buy a book. Today's event was sponsored by the City Lights Foundation, furthering the legacy of our late founder, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. That is all for now. I wish you all the best. Please be safe. Be well. We look forward to seeing you all again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Nos vemos en Nueva York en junio, querida. Nos vemos acá. Besito. Besitos. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com slash events.